This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast. I'm here with Dan Kent. We're recording our news and earnings episode, like always, uh, that will be released on Thursday. Dan, how are you? Are you considering yourself the good luck charm for the Oilers right now? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was hoping last week that we'd be talking about 16 in a row, and we are. Hopefully, uh, it kind of sucks they get the little all-star break now. Who knows if that'll help them or hurt them, but they're going for the record next game. And uh, I actually had a buddy who is so confident that he is flying down to California to go to the Anaheim game where they would have the chance to break the record. Okay, okay. And I told him, I'm like, man, they got to beat Vegas first. I think that's that's like, that's bad luck, I think. But hopefully they can pull it off. Yeah, that's uh, that's funny, and I don't know about you. And getting back to more of the investing world, it was a struggle for me in terms of choosing what topic. There was a lot of like macro stuff we can talk about. There's also earnings are really starting to be back, uh, you know, back in in action. Obviously, on the U.S. side, the Canada side starting to pick up as well. Did you have that same challenge? Because one topic we aren't going to touch on is what's happening in China. I know there's a lot of stuff happening, so probably in the next couple of weeks. We'll try to talk about that, but was that the same thing for you? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, especially on the Canadian side, earnings-wise is is pretty slow still, but this week is definitely going to start rolling in. I think tonight we have what, Google, Amazon, Microsoft maybe tonight or maybe tomorrow. I can't remember. Most of them report after hours. Yeah, there's a few reporting of the big tech for sure. I don't know which ones, but uh, yeah, it'll be something to, to keep an eye on. Well, let's get started. We do have a full slate today. So we'll start off with some Canadian content. I think something that everyone is keeping an eye on, at least if you're a homeowner and either you have a variable rate or you're going to be renewing your mortgage in uh, the next couple of years. So the Bank of Canada decision last week came up. And of course, to no one's surprise, the Bank of Canada kept its policy rate at 5%. So what's your initial thoughts on that? I'm going to do a little bit of a breakdown here, but I'm assuming you weren't surprised either. No, I think there was a, I guess, a small chance that there would be a cut, but I think they were factoring it in as pretty close to zero that they would cut. They would just keep it steady. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely helping. And now they're kind of shifting their mentality towards, you know, every single policy meeting, they would say, you know, like, we'll raise again if needed, we'll raise again if needed. And now it's kind of shifted to thinking about when to cut, which probably means that, you know, unless something happens with inflation now where we see a big spike up, this is probably the top. And um, I've noticed mortgage rates have been coming down a bit, I think. So fixed rate mortgages, at least, and maybe even variables, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm up for renewal in a few years. And I'm hoping that they're a bit lower when I get there. But not surprising at all. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. So what they were saying, the Bank of Canada, when they held the uh, press conference, it was Carolyn Rogers and Tiff Tiff Macklem. They held the joint press conference, which I do applaud them for including Carolyn Rogers because she's more charismatic and way better at explaining things than Tiff Macklem. I don't know why they don't use her more often because she's way better at communicating. So the discussion, like you alluded to, they were saying that it shifted from whether the policy rate is restrictive enough. So if 
rates, you know, shifted from our rates high enough to how long it, they need to stay at their current level. Now, one of the things they said is Canadian economic growth stall in the middle of 2023. Pretty obvious if you've been paying attention to this. Economic growth is expected to be modest in 2024, weak in the first half, and then picking up later in the year. They expect 2.5% growth in 2025. And that's similar to what Ben Tao was saying in his interview uh, with The Globe that I summed up last week. So I do encourage people to go back to that episode if you're interested in hearing that. So it, it does line up with that. And they're saying with weak demand, upwards pressure on prices should continue to moderate. And their key mandate here is inflation. But of course, I've had people push back on that. But yes, their key mandate may be inflation. But, you know, they... There, there's always in the back of their mind too, like they they don't want to break the economy as well, right? So it's always kind of that balancing act between inflation and making sure that it comes down and it doesn't impact too much the economy. That's always the, the fine balance they're trying to do. Shelter inflation remains high because of higher mortgage payments, higher rents, and higher mortgage costs. And the path back to 2% inflation will be slow and the risks remain. Inflation is expected to stay around 3% over the first half of this year and trend to 2.5% by the end of next year. They were very kind of, as they were saying this, it was Tiff Macklem saying this, obviously, he was saying that there's still some risk here and they expect to get back to the target inflation rate by uh, the end of 2025. We'll see if that happens. Now, I don't know if you listened to the uh, press conference. It was funny, but they got asked five times about rate cuts by reporters. And they make it clear it's always one question per reporter. I don't know if you listened to it. I mean, I no, just was I flabbergasted. Okay, it was just... I mean, at, after two... Clearly, they're not answering that question. So maybe move on, have some other questions prepared. So I was a little confused at some of the reporters and the lack of preparation for some of them. Not to say there were some good questions that were asked, but the fact that people were just asking this time and time again, I find that a bit of a head scratcher. And maybe news outlets uh, should rethink who they send to these press conferences that actually have... I uh, you know a bit more deep knowledge on how the Bank of Canada works. And one thing that's really interesting that no one asked a question about is why the Bank of Canada injected $10 billion in the span of a few days in the repo market. So the repo market is essentially short for repurchase agreement. And it's a tool that's often used between banks, but can also used by central banks. And a simplified version example of how it works is let's say you have Royal Bank. They need 200 million in cash for their ongoing operation. They have tons of assets, but they need a bit more liquidity. So Royal Bank has tons of Government of Canada bonds. So it goes to TD and says, hey, TD, can you lend me some cash as collateral? I'll be providing you 200 million worth of Canadian government bonds and you can charge me the overnight rate, which is 5%. So repo means that Royal Bank will be able to repurchase the bank uh, the bonds back from TD at a later date at a slightly higher price, you know, the price that it's worth plus the, the interest. It's typically done overnight, but can also be done in a slightly longer duration. And if you're a bit confused still, I know it can get a bit more in the plumbing here. An easy way to look at it is just think about a pawn shop. You give them, say, a ring to pawn. 
And in exchange, they give you cash with the option of buying it back at a later date. So it's almost, you know, I think that's the simplest explanation I've heard when uh, someone was asking the question. It's a perfect example, I think, yeah. Yeah. If you need cash for, you don't have liquidity, <laughs> you need to give an item for cash and they charge you more to buy it back. Yeah, perfect example. Exactly. And just to finish on this, because I don't want to get too deep into this, but just the fact that this question wasn't asked. And again, it's a bit worrying that it wasn't asked on the first end, but also like what exactly is happening with this. So when central banks intervene in the repo market, it's usually because there is a shortage of liquidity. So they'll basically act as the lender. So signs of liquidity shortage is when the overnight rate starts going above the target, which currently sits at 5%. Could just be a few basis points, like, you know, three, four, five, six, seven basis points. Doesn't have to be a huge increase, but it typically is a sign that the market is getting tighter, liquidity is getting tighter. So you know, the lenders are able to charge a bit more interest. And that's not something that the central banks or the Bank of Canada in this instant will want to see. And I know there's a lot of new terms if you're kind of new to the podcast. So liquidity is just a fancy word to say it's typically cash or assets that can be quickly sold for cash. So that's something to keep an eye on. I know there are some news outlets that started kind of looking at this a couple days ago so we'll have to see whether in the next uh, announcement they'll be asking those questions but i i just thought it was interesting that they are so zoned in on interest rates and i do wonder sometimes if the reporters are really well versed or at least more than just a basic understanding there some are to be fair some are yeah clearly a few of them only ever had one question yeah and once i got asked the first time they were kind of screwed they had nothing else to ask (laughs) But yeah, it's yeah. not, I mean, in terms of inflation, especially with the higher mortgage payments, higher rents, and I think they view this as probably an easy thing to get down. So they're probably going to wait until they see improvements elsewhere. And then, you know, they know when they cut rates that uh, mortgage payments, higher rents, higher mortgage costs should come down, which, you know, maybe gets them to their target a little bit easier. But the one thing is, it's so hard to predict. Like, I don't know if you remember last year, they said that they would get to target, I think it was at the middle of 2024, late 2024, then it get pushed, It gets pushed to 2025. Now it's, what is it, the end of 25? Or, I don't know, it's it's so hard to predict this type of stuff. And I mean, even in the, in the pandemic, they said it was transitory, which I guess it always is in a way, but they never expected it to go as high as it was. So, I mean, even even these policymakers don't, really know what's going to happen that's kind of why it's so hard to devise an investing strategy based on stuff like this but i find a lot of people get really obsessed with uh, this type of stuff yeah and to be fair like we don't know either right there's so many variables that could go into getting inflation back down to the target range of one to three percent so keep in mind one of the more obvious one is in my mind that's you know not talked about all that much the it's really the price of oil like price of oil has been quite low for now a pretty significant period of time and of course when cpi data inflation data comes out it's always like oh you know it was brought down by the price of oil that's still much lower than it was a year ago but 
I don't know if they're factoring any major kind of oil shocks in that target because if it does happen, I have a feeling that the 1% to 3% target may be pushed back even more down the line. That's just my inkling, especially with the kind of what's happening in the Middle East and how many large producers there are there and how much it could potentially affect supply. That's where I do, I have a, you know, I, I find it a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, it's a big element in all of it. Like you said, we've had, I don't even know what oil is right now. It's like low 70s. But if it, it you know, if it spikes again, you never know where these numbers could sit, which is completely unpredictable. So like we said, like it's so hard to predict it. I mean, hopefully we can get back to that level because a lot of people are definitely struggling still with food, mortgage costs, all that kind of stuff. Like the quicker, the better in reality. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, we'll, enough about Macro, the Bank of Canada. We'll move on to the first earnings we'll talked about, and it's about Elon and his company. Do you want to tell us about Tesla earnings? Yeah, so Tesla was pretty lackluster again. Uh, the stock taken an absolute beating over the last month. It's down 28%. It might have, I think it recovered a bit after this, but it's down 28% while the S&P over that time frame is up two and a half. So the stock is now down 31% over the last three years and is under, underperforming the S&P 500 by a whopping 62%. Uh, if we go to November 2021 highs, it's down nearly 54%. So when you compare the fourth quarter of this year to last, total automotive revenues came in pretty much flat. I think they grew 1% or 2% and vehicle deliveries only grew about 2%. So its energy and services segment did post some pretty nice growth, uh, 10 and 27% respectively, but these make up a really small portion of the business, only around 14% combined. So for this reason, Tesla, it's it's just taken a pretty big thrashing. Gross margins dipped 612 basis points, which would be 6.12%, and operating margins have fallen nearly 8%. Again, this is on a uh, quarter over quarter, so comparing this quarter to last year's. On a year-over-year -year basis, the company has saw some pretty reasonable growth. Auto revenues, 15%, while energy generation and services grew 54% and 37%. Again, they make up a relatively minor chunk of the business, and it's it's pretty clear right now that even, you know, a lot of people say Tesla is a lot more than an automobile company, but for right now, it's very much an automobile company because the reason this company is struggling so hard is because of its auto segment, which is, I think, 82 or 83% of total, total revenues on the year-over-year. -year. Uh, free cash flows dipped 42% on the year despite capex capital expenditures only increasing 24%. It's pretty clear the company is being hit pretty hard on multiple levels. For one, just a general slowdown. I mean, Teslas were crazy popular in the pandemic when there was a lot of money around. These vehicles are very expensive. The kind of the EV narrative was a lot bigger then. Now it's really slowed down the adoption of EV vehicles. You know, people can't afford them right now. And as a result, they're pretty much having to cut prices. I'm not even sure how many times they've cut prices. It has to be two or three times now. They've had to cut prices down to try to make the vehicles more attractive. And I mean, I think even Musk came out now. And well, this was probably a year ago, but he said, you know, like when, when interest rates were at 0%, there was almost no financing costs when purchasing a Tesla. Now you factor that in. 
people are going to, you know, to get that same payment, they're going to be paying like 30% less for the vehicle or something like that. So it's, it's a pretty big factor. And this is highlighted by the fact that year over year margins are down more than 7.5%. And to put this into a little bit more context, it, it had gross margins of 25.6% in 2022. So in terms of its total gross margins, like as a percentage of what it had in, in 2022, they're down about 30%. On a full year comparison, the numbers don't look too bad, but quarterly results, especially over the last quarters, kind of show some pretty big issues in terms of the company, especially relative to its valuation. It's it's pretty hard to justify you know multiples the company is trading at, especially when you look at the other auto producers, which are are nowhere even close, and that's exactly why it's underperformed for for quite some time now. And they even said that its vehicle growth rate may be notably lower than the growth rate achieved in 2023. So it, it grew vehicle sales by 15% in 2023. They expect it to be notably lower. Like to me, that means maybe 5%. I don't know, quite, quite, a, big, quite a big cut, I mean, in my eyes. They state that the energy and storage business should outpace the automotive business in 2024 in terms of revenue growth. But again... That segment makes up, and actually I said 14% before, apparently it's, it's 7.3% of revenue. So, or that's that's actually just their uh, energy storage. They also have the um, services business, but regardless, they're really small portions. And I mean, just straight up in my opinion, I, I don't know how the company is really all that attractive right now. It's, it's trading at 150 times. It's trailing free cash flows, which with no you know major signs of growing that cash flow, like at least in the next few years, just because of the struggles they expect from the from the auto market. And I think that's why it's taken, you know, it's down, down huge, especially like out of all the, you know, big tech, big tech, Magnificent Seven, it's it's the worst by by quite a wide margin. Yeah. And I mean, you're right for the so for people to give a bit more context here. So the total automotive revenue for looking at just the past uh, quarter. So that's about 21.5 billion roughly and then you're looking at the rest of the revenue being about 3.5 billion so it's still predominantly automotive driven and totally agree with you there and i think it's going to be it's going to be challenging for a lot of uh, companies especially with higher rates and that's something i'll be talking with brayden uh, on the monday episode is i pulled out some stats i think it was from can't remember the source but basically at least in canada three quarters of people buy cars either on financing or they lease them so yeah. that higher interest rate that you have to pay makes a big big difference when you think that most people still buy cars on credit when they buy them whether it's new or used use it similar figures although obviously you're not leasing it when they're used but it's still more than half of people uh, do it uh for on credit for used cars as well yeah and it's a huge cost to pay right now like, i don't even know what i haven't financed a vehicle for quite a while i don't know what the interest rate would be on a new vehicle i know you can still get pretty low but i would imagine like five plus percent which I mean, it's pretty big. And especially when you get into the used vehicle market, it's probably even bigger. So, I mean, the one thing, the one thing about Tesla is Elon Musk is, is like openly blunt about this type of stuff too. Like he does not shy away from saying that they are going to struggle in the next while. And he, he's pretty much stated that. I mean, 
their margins, that's a huge dip in margins. And I think it's mostly due to just trying to cut the prices. And I don't know what even what a Tesla was worth, you know, back in the pandemic, it had to be $100,000 for one of these things. They're crazy expensive. And, and now like people just, they just can't afford them. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Depending, I think on the model, I think the the cheapest model was probably cheaper than that. Maybe in the like, I don't know, I, I've never been yeah. that interested to buy a car from them. Just not that they're not a nice car. It's just I don't think the infrastructure is really there to make it a seamless experience right now. And we've talked about that before. But yeah, I think it's going to be definitely a challenging year, especially with EVs. They're really expensive at some point, too. You have all these government incentives. Like at some point, I mean, you're going to have to dial down those incentives. So it's going to be yeah. interesting how it goes for them going forward. Yeah, and I was just looking up the... I was trying to look up the estimates for... They still like they're still pretty bullish on Tesla like in terms of earnings growth. They still think they'll grow earnings by 30-40% over the next, you know, year or so, but I don't know, it's tough. It, it's tough right now to see any, you know, lo- like short-term upside in the company, but who knows? We'll see where it goes. It wasn't a it wasn't a very good quarter, that's for sure. I mean, they're down yeah. like I said <laughs> nearly nearly 30% on the month, so that was fairly obvious. Yeah, and but to be fair to for Tesla and for those who might own the stock, it's always been a very volatile stock. Yeah. So this is not out of the ordinary, whether it goes way up or way down. So it's just something that's par for the course. So if you do like the company still, you know, take that in mind if you take a position. And I think we've discussed this before, Brayden and I, you as well. Position sizing matters a lot. So if you want a position in something, but you know, you're afraid of the volatility, but you still want to get some exposure, maybe size it accordingly. Maybe just do a position that's like one or two percent so it doesn't wreck your portfolio if it goes sideways and you can handle the volatility. That's always and I don't think it's talked enough. Position sizing is such an important tool to kind of manage the risk within your portfolio. Yep, absolutely. I agree on that. I don't like I'm not I'm not like totally beating up on Tesla, but just like when we look at this quarter, it doesn't look, you know, short to midterm. It it might have some issues in terms of sales and stuff like that. And they've they've pretty much stated as much. But um, I think it's still, you know, a pretty good company when you think of, you know, a long term investment in, you know, the adoption to EV, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So now we'll move on again, a little bit of macro. And uh, I think this one is really something to keep an eye on, especially as we were talking about inflation earlier. So the impact of shipping issues on the economy. So I did some research for this. I think it's really interesting. So the Drury World Container Index, WCI, it actually tracks eight major trade routes and the costs associated with those trade routes. And I was curious to see what the uh, cost is. And for those who are on joint TCI, you'll be able to see that the costs have simply been on a, essentially it's a hockey stick trajectory to say the least. So whether you're looking at the worldwide costs, ammo amalgamated as a whole or looking at different trade routes uh, the costs have gone way up for sure there are certain trade routes that it's gone up a bit less and i'll explain why because it is impacted by what's going on in the red sea but definitely something to keep an eye on in terms of inflation because they're 
could be some inflationary pressures because of this. Now, since Houthis in Yemen started targeting cargo ships through the Red Sea, shipping costs have almost doubled according to the index, with the sharpest increases seen for goods heading from Asia to Europe because they have to go through the Red Sea. And the only other alternative is much more costly. The impact is not as high in North America, but there is still a pretty significant impact as the cost for shipping goods is over overall higher. Now, attacks on container ships have continues as news of British tanker. The British tanker was actually hit by Houthi missiles last week. And more and more shipping companies are choosing not to go through the Red Sea, Will, which will definitely put some more pressure on costs. And that's because the Red Sea and the Suez Canal is a much more efficient way to ship goods from Asia to Europe. The alternative route is through the Cape of Good Hope, which essentially, for those who want to visualize, a little bit. It just means that the ship have to go all the way around Africa instead of bypassing through the Middle East. So it does increase the cost and going through the Red Sea takes approximately 25 days where going around the Cape of Good Hope takes 34 days. So that's a difference of nine days or 36% longer. So clearly there is additional cost that'll be much higher than that. You have to pay your crews longer. There is more fuel required. There's all these different additional costs. And to make things worse now, a severe drought has been happening around the Panama Canal and is forcing them to reduce traffic that goes through the canal. And if this goes on for a while, it's going to increase shipping costs for goods that are coming from Asia to the east coast of North America. That's because those ships typically will go through the Panama the Panama Canal. Having trouble with that word today, but uh, I'll blame that on lack of sleep and being French. But it. The good news in all of this is I think, I don't know what you think, Dan, but um, I think it might be good for railways, at least in Canada, because the lodging behind this is these ships may opt to go more on the west coast of North America instead of going through the Panama Canal and have those ships those goods shipped by rail. So overall, though, I think this is not great. It's something to keep an eye on. It may, I suspect there's going to be a lag effect here. So we may not see the inflation related to this just now, but it over time, I think we will be seeing more and more, you know, inflation due to these higher costs. Yeah, I didn't even uh, I didn't even consider the the railway thing. That is pretty interesting. I know I was I was reading up on the Panama Canal, and I believe they said they're going to cut shipments by like 36% because of the drought. They said at first they had estimated that it'll cost them $200 million, but now they're up to like $700 million. So, I mean, ultimately, it's not uh, it's not really a good, not good overall for inflation. I think, uh, wasn't it the, was it the Suez or the Panama Canal where that boat got stuck? That was the Suez. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think that might have been last year. I don't know. Everything just blends in. But and they had that. Yeah. Uh, they had the the traco there, like trying to dig out that big boat, that pitcher. Oh my god, that was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a tricky situation. Like shipping. I mean, having a job in the uh, shipping industry, especially going through here, is pretty dangerous right now. I've watched a few of those videos where they like hijack those boats. It's pretty crazy. But ultimately, hopefully, they get that <laughs> resolved over the short term. Because obviously, you're saying what did, I can't remember what you said. Like thirty, yeah, thirty six percent longer. 
I think I watched, it was like an extra 3,700 miles or something extra to go around Africa to make this work. So not good. Lots of turmoil going on right now for sure. Yeah, and the cost associated with 36% longer, it's way more than 36% when you think about it, right? When mm. I was saying it's not just the additional time, it's the additional money you're paying your crews, it's the additional gas. So the companies have to make, you know, have to pay for all that stuff. And if they decide to go through, I can just imagine uh, this is just an educated or uneducated guess that insurance costs are going through the roof. Or either that or insurance companies are starting to not want to insure these boats. So that would be another thing. So something to keep an eye on. And I'm sure that's something the central banks are keeping an eye on as well, because it could definitely be inflationary when it comes to goods. Yep, definitely. Now we'll move on to... uh, I saw this story yesterday and uh, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm sure Dan and Nick on the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast will talk about this, but you want to tell us about Leon's Furniture or Leon, as I like to call it. It's definitely called, yeah, it's definitely (laughs) called Leon's. I just like to say Leon. They're going to be starting to build homes. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a little bit, I think a lot of people don't even realize that Leon's is publicly traded, but they are publicly traded on the TSX. So they had a... 16.2 hectare parcel of land and all they kind of said that it was historically been reserved for employment use so i don't really know what that would mean it's hard to tell they didn't really expand on it but what they plan to do is take that parcel of land and build they want to build over four thousand homes so the parcel is in toronto um i didn't get the exact location they did say where it was but i actually forgot to write i forgot to write it down here i was going to mention where it was and maybe You'd be able to tell if it was like a hotbed or what in Toronto, but they're currently in discussions with the city to get permitting in place. And what they plan to do is build also a flagship store at the heart of the development. So they're going to build 4,000 homes. And I would imagine their strategy here is to build that flagship furniture store to furnish these 4,000 homes. So yeah, it seems you, like you, a pretty good idea. We're giving you a discount as long as yeah. you buy all the furniture and appliances yeah. from us. Yeah, exactly. The land was probably never going to be used as a cash generating asset. And the fact it's going to be able to build over 4,000 homes in pretty much Canada's real estate hotbed should allow it to unlock like, I don't know, to, to me, like massive value from this this tiny parcel of land. Well, I guess not tiny. 4,000 homes is, is quite a bit of homes. The company says it owns $236 million of unencumbered real estate on its balance sheet, and it feels like its real estate portfolio is not reflected in its share price at all. And due to this, like due to this news, the share shot, the share price went up 10%. It's not really that surprising. They took, I don't even know what it was used for before and are going to expand it into this huge neighborhood. It's, you know... Overall, like Leon's in general, like when you think of this company, it it doesn't really seem all that interesting, but it has been, and I was actually surprised, a 15 bagger since the the mid 1990s. So it's outperformed the S&P. It's returned 16, almost 1600% since the the mid 90s. I mean, this is probably not a company I would ever really look to own, like just a furniture company, just with how cyclical it would be. But there's no doubt that it uh, it's done quite well. Oh, and you have you have returns even you have yeah, returns even with before. total returns. Yeah, yeah. So 
It would have started here in early 1990, uh, so January 1990, and the total return, so including the dividend, would have been 3,466% or 11.1% annually. So you would have outperformed the S&P yeah. 500, I believe, at that rate annually. So... Hey, I, I mean, they haven't been doing as well in recent years. So if you go back to the last 10 years and you're looking at 7.7% yeah. annually and 110% return, which is still not bad, probably in line with the TSX, I would think about that. But uh, probably pretty close. I didn't, yeah. yeah, I didn't realize it was publicly traded either. So <laughs> yeah, it's one of those like there's that. And what's another one? Oh, Sleep Country. Like a lot of people Sleep don't Country, know. Sleep Country, yeah, that one I knew. Yeah, yeah. These like tiny, the but not really tiny. Oh yeah, ZZZ, yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, like these tiny like Canadian, pretty much Canadian only f furniture stores you don't really think are that big to be publicly traded, but they actually are. I just thought it was kind of interesting that they're venturing into home building. Yeah, I mean, the only way I can think of that making sense is if the land is clearly like undervalued by shareholders or yeah. investors. And I think that's what they mean. Yeah, because and that's what you said. So uh, if not, I mean, it's difficult to see how it would make sense. I mean, building homes is not an easy business. No. Uh, building costs have gone up. You know, it's it probably is a bit tricky to even price homes right now. So if you pre-sell these, uh, I don't know if they're going to be doing single family home, row houses, uh, semi-detached, mix. mix, okay. Yeah. But even then, it's a bit difficult to probably value these homes. I'm sure they'll get some expertise, some good builders to uh, to help them out with that. But uh, I mean, it'll be interesting. I would not have expected that at no. all. Yeah, That's kind of what I took from it too when they mentioned how much real estate they have on their balance sheet and how it's not being reflected in its share price. To me, this seems like a move to, you know, maybe bring some of that value out and uh, we'll see how it goes. It'll be interesting. I mean, it's Toronto. There's going to be demand for the homes for sure. So yeah, it feels like there always will be in Toronto, yeah. but now we'll, we'll stick in Canada for the next one. Some more earnings, uh, Canadian national railway Q4 and full year. So all amounts are in Canadian dollars here. And I'll mostly talk about the full year, um, numbers. So revenues were down 2% to 16.8 billion. That's a decrease of 279 million or 2%. Operating income was down 4% to 6.6 billion. The operating ratio increased 80 basis point to 60.8%. Now, if you're not familiar with operating ratio, it's not great to see an increase because this is the opposite of operating margin. So lower is better here. Net income increased 10% to 5.6 billion. Earnings per share increased 15% to $8.53. That's because of discrepancies because they've been buying back shares pretty aggressively, returning capital back to shareholders. They generated 3.8% in free cash flow. That's a 9% decrease. Now, in terms of railway-specific metrics, car velocity increased 4%. This is simply how many miles a car moves a day. A car is just like, you know, these like kind of single units, if you'd like. There's all different kind of names, but they use car velocity here. Train length was up 1%. Revenue ton miles was up 2%. And this is a measure of how revenue 
how much revenue they make per volume of freight transported. So again, this is good that it's going up. It increased the dividend. Uh, they said they would be increasing the dividend 7%, and they would also have a new buyback authorization of up to 32 million shares until January 2025. So clearly just returning more capital to shareholders, which they've been doing pretty aggressively since Tracy Robinson has taken over and that debacle of an attempt to purchase uh, Kansas City Southern yeah. from the pre Jean-Jacques Rouet, I believe, was the previous CEO. And I mean, yeah, I've talked about it before and just like I do not understand what they were thinking or what they were smoking when they thought this was a good idea and it would actually get approved. It ended up costing them about a billion, if I remember correctly. Uh, there was like a breakup fee yeah. and that they had to pay. And uh, shortly thereafter, he left the company. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the gist of it. The last thing I'll mention is Tracy Robinson on the call said they rem there remain some questions on where the economy is heading, but they expect continued improvement as the year progresses. And again, that's in line with what we were talking about earlier with the Bank of Canada and also Bantal when I was... Uh, you know, giving an overview of his interview with the Globe and Mail. And because of improved efficiencies and the economy slowly improving, they expect earning per share to grow by 10% in 2024. So overall, I mean, not a great uh, year and quarter, I would say. Fine. They were... I mean, not a big surprise is what I would say. I think most people were expecting that earlier in the year. They had uh, kind of slower business because of all the forest fires that we saw in Canada as well. But kind of what was expected, I think, from my view. And then it'll be interesting how it trends in 2024. Yeah, it's not not all that surprising, especially like railways are going to be cyclical to a certain extent. They're going to slow down when the economy slows down. The earnings guidance is actually pretty good because i remember like at one point they were pretty much saying earnings would be flat or or maybe grow in the mid single digits which would have pretty much been from buybacks probably yeah. because 32 million shares is about five percent of their outstanding so i mean half of that is probably coming just directly from the buybacks but clearly they've see a bit brighter outlook in terms of buybacks, they do buy back a ton of shares. So they bought back 20, 22.5% of shares outstanding over the last 10 years. So that's yeah, uh, yeah. that's quite a bit. Yeah, and it's not obviously a sexy business. And CP no. is a little bit different. You can make a case that CP may have a bit more growth ahead because of that at Kansas City Southern. But they yeah. also you know, took on a lot of debt to make that acquisition. So I think it's give or take. I personally don't think you can go wrong with any of the two railways at the end of the day. Governments are very, you know, the regulatory kind of situation around railways makes their moat extremely sustainable and very difficult for any competitors to come in, whether it's just regulation and thinking of building a new railway, right? Think about it. If you wanted to build a new railway across Canada, you'd have to essentially get approval from the federal government, but all the various provinces and then add in the cost of what it would actually cost to do that and the sheer investment. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm just going to say it's probably a below 1% probability that it would ever happen, at least in, I feel like, in our lifetime. Yeah, it's much the same as the as the telecom companies here in Canada. I mean, the infrastructure and the government regulations makes it 
almost impossible for like major competition to step in. So yeah, the only difference is they don't have to constantly upgrade their uh, their five G or six G network, which yeah. costs billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, they're it's a little less in that regard. Although, I mean, the railways are probably. I mean, they do probably require a ton of maintenance, especially with uh, ties and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think they were saying their um, their capex is going to be around three point four billion for this year, if I remember correctly, just going on memory. So yeah, you're uh, completely right. Like it's not, it's definitely capital intensive. I think that's business. close to yeah. Telus. Telus, well, yeah, Telus is around that amount. So yeah, these businesses they're not cheap to operate. The only difference is they generate way more cash flow than the telecoms, which yes. uh, I'm gonna take every day. But yeah. I think I think that's enough for the Canadian Railways. You wanna talk to us about Archer Daniels Midland accounting issues? I mean, I wasn't really aware of this company all that much, so maybe uh, I think that's a bit of a learning opportunity for me as well. Oh, I'm surprised you didn't know about that. They're a huge, uh, pretty much food processor, like crop type company. They went bonkers during the pandemic just because of the prices of commodities. But they're one of the I largest. I know the name, but yeah. I, I don't really follow them all that much. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of a like a blue chip type food processing company, uh, grower, things like that. So they're one of the largest grain merchandisers in the world. Uh, they run a nutrition end of the business where they focus on, you know, nutrition elements of human and animal products. And that's actually where uh, the issues are arising. So they absolutely plummeted last week. So they fell from pretty much right away from $69 a share to 51. So more than 26%. And that's a pretty big move for this company. So pretty much their nutrition segment, there was an accounting probe. So the company immediately came out, they suspended their CFO slash their earnings outlook and pretty much stated that the probe was the reason. So there's obviously issues here. They're also delaying their fourth quarter earnings and annual report because of this, which typically scares the hell out of investors. I mean, there was so much that happened here. I mean, the suspension, the earnings outlook, they delay their earnings, they delay their annual report. And they've spent a lot of time and a lot of money to expand the nutrition end of its business in an effort to, you know, diversify itself away from, you know, strictly crop elements, things like that. And it's, this is a pretty interesting thing. And I I actually learned this yesterday. So Archer Daniels has been in hot water in the past. They were accused of fixing prices in the 1990s. And it was such a huge issue that they actually made a movie out of it with Matt Damon. It's called The Informant. That is apparently oh, yeah. on the uh, Archer Daniels scandal in the 90s where they were accused of uh, fixing prices. I haven't watched it. I might now. But yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. I had no idea about that. Yeah, I feel like I saw this movie a long time ago, but oh my God, I would not have been able before this to tell you like <laughs> yeah. what it was about. Am I like, yeah, that's, I feel like it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. So they've, I mean- They've already, you know, the company's already under some pressure prior to this because of the slowdown in revenues coming out of the pandemic. So for it to take, you know, 25% additional is kind of a gut punch. But I mean, any probes or acquisitions, accusations of misrepresented earnings is no doubt going to cause a stock to plummet. I mean, we have to remember the market values companies based on these earnings. So as soon as they're in question, people tend to bail the 25% dip is quite extensive, especially considering its nutrition segment, which is the one that's under question, makes up 
only around 10% of the business, but I think there's kind of an element of trust here. And considering the company has been involved in this type of stuff before, investors have an even shorter leash. So the debate among many investors right now is whether or not the company is a buy. Expected earnings are supposed to be just shy of 6% for 2024. So I think right now it's trading at around $54. So we're talking like it looks pretty cheap, but with the earnings in question, who really knows what the case could be? I mean, I personally wouldn't touch it until the acquisitions are cleared up. And I was actually burnt on a hydrogen play. I think it was a Quebec company not too long ago during the pandemic for pretty much the exact same reason. I don't know if you know about this company, Zebec, they were called. So they were like a no, renewable gas yeah. uh, hydrogen. Just. Okay. So they were posting all this growth, like really strong numbers. And then it came out that they were pretty much fabricating all of it. So they were, uh, you know, misleading people with their financial statements. They were booking revenues that they shouldn't have, which which resulted in way better numbers than actually existed. And then when they revised, when they eventually got caught and had to revise it downward, it was it was pretty nasty, and they ended up just going bankrupt. They just straight up went oh, really? bankrupt. Yeah, it, it was a pretty crazy story. And they were posting they were posting big growth. I mean, and then they. They had to come out and they said, you know, some of the some of the revenues we've booked are actually not going to be coming in. And it was like, holy, you've got to be kidding me. And it ended up being a lot worse than even initially expected. And the company just, it ended up folding. So, uh, I mean, I learned my lesson from that. And again, I think as you mentioned, you know, with Tesla, with the position sizing, like it was such a speculative company for me. It was less than 1% of my portfolio. I think even like 0.5. So it was... Like it sucked, obviously, but it was it was a non-issue in the grand scheme of my portfolio. So, um, I mean, on that end, like uh, Archer Daniels is way bigger than that. I don't think they're going to go bankrupt. It's a very small portion of their business, but this is just an example of you know the dangers of you know accounting issues with some of these companies and the fact that like you know these there is always risk with you know publicly traded stocks. Things like this can happen with with any sort of company. I mean Archer Daniels I think is a 50 billion dollar company or at least they were before the dip. So this type of stuff doesn't just happen in uh small caps, micro caps, things like that. Yeah, I mean it's 30 billion so it's uh yeah. it's lost a little bit of a uh, little bit of market cap since then, but I mean yeah, I think we've seen these kind of accounting issues in the past where there's so many different outcomes that can happen. We saw what happened with Canopy in Canada with their biosteel segment. Yeah, where, exactly. You know, biosteel went from being like the the one shining star within their portfolio to basically being the company or the segment that was dragging down the company and its potent, its path for profit profitability. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. And like you said, it's really hard to say where it's going to go. It could, an investigation could reveal even more things that went wrong here. So I totally agree with you that when you see this kind of stuff, I think some people may get the urge to be like, oh, you know, brush it off and it's a great opportunity to buy. But there's a lot of example that say that, that show that sometimes it's just the tip of the iceberg that comes out and there's even more weird or sh- weird stuff or shenanigans happening when uh, auditors start going through that. Yeah, and that's probably why you see a 25% dip on, you know, a, a probe into 10% of the business is people might think, you know, if they dig even further, like who knows what they're going to uncover. And I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure Archer Daniels is a dividend king. So it's raised dividends for 
50 years. I could be wrong on that, 50 plus years, but it's a it's an old company. It's got a lot of history. So for something to happen like this to a company of this size, uh, kind of has this reputation is actually, it's pretty surprising, especially with like the immediate the immediate suspension of their CFO, you know, they immediately come out, slash its earnings outlook. So it's probably not going to be good. You don't know the end result of it ultimately, but if they did that all that so fastly, clearly there's issues there, even if it's a small portion of the business. Yeah. And they may be just trying to kind of rip the bandaid off too, right? Just basically we're not providing any guidance. So is that what they said? Like no guidance and we're just reevaluating thing or just slashed it? No, I think they did slash it. Give me a sec. I would have to look it up, but uh, I'm pretty sure they still issued guidance, but they, they cut it. Okay. They cut it. So they're probably trying to be as conservative as possible as they kind of find out more stuff. But yeah, something to keep an eye on. We'll try to, we'll move on here to a different company. Much larger company, probably 10 times larger than market cap. So this uh, company I'm talking about here is ASML, the Dutch company, uh, Q4 and full year's results. Now, if you're new to the podcast, here is a quick overview of ASML because, you know, they make some pretty complicated stuff. So this is just high level. ASML is a company that plays a crucial role in the production of semiconductor chips, which are just a fancy way of saying like kind of computer chip, which go in pretty much everything uh, like computers, smartphones, and much more more cars. You know, think about anything that's kind of remotely electronic. There's probably some kind of semiconductor chip in it, even your refrigerator. The company specializes in creating machines called lithography systems. Now, ASML's main business revolves around making machines that are essential in the chip making process. These machines use a technique called lithography to create extremely small and intricate patterns on a surface of semiconductor wafers so it's just a critical part of those semiconductors there is only a handful of companies or not even i think there's like three or four that have like actually build these machines and asml is the only one that builds extreme ultraviolet machines so euv and they also have a kind of less advanced duv which is deep ultraviolet machines that they build and ship those machines there's also some other companies that build those but again it's an oligopoly here there's only a handful so these are really advanced and just a technical know-how to be able to build these machines is quite something now the numbers here all the numbers are in euros and i think asml before i go on with the numbers it's probably one of the most important companies that everyday people don't know about you know if you ask anyone on the street like do you know what asml is probably nine out of ten will say they've never heard of it and how important it is i think it's quite often misunderstood by a lot of people yeah i mean even i'm not too I don't really know about the company that much. I mean, I've heard of them. I've never really looked too in-depth on them. I mean, a lot of this technology is probably just over and above what people are kind of willing to dig into. But I mean, I mean, (laughs) I personally, you know, I know generally how the machines work, obviously, like going into it and fully understanding from A to Z, basically, you would need a PhD in 
not computer science, but probably a PhD in lithography or something like that, if that's such a thing. So it's extremely complex. But these machines, the most advanced one, they cost over $200 million per machine. So this is how expensive these machines are. Now, revenues and profit came in above expectation for Q4, which sent the stock up when earnings were released. I think they was up high single digits. For the full year, revenues increased 30.2% to $27.6 billion. At the beginning of 2023, their guidance was that revenue would be up 25% for the year. And they, they tend to do that. So they tend to be a bit more conservative when they issue guidance. Revenues were up 12.5% for the quarter and compared to last year, so year over year for the quarter, and 8.4% compared to Q3 of 2023, so on a sequential basis. They recognize revenue on 53 EUV systems, so their most advanced system, and 396 DUV system, the the ones are a bit less advanced. 42% of the systems sales came from EUV and the rest from DUV. So it clearly shows here that EUV systems are significantly more expensive because it's uh, still a small portion of all the revenue recognized uh, in terms of units, yet it's almost half of the total sales. Net income was up 39% on a full year basis to $7.8 billion. EPS was up 41% and they generated $3.2 billion in free cash flow, which was less than half of last year. So some thing to keep in mind and what I was kind of curious is I wanted to see how it looked like in terms of the regions to where they ship these machines and what's interesting is the Chinese shipment has actually increased um, I have a little graphic here for our joint TCI listeners and I'll explain it for those who are just listening on audio so the top one would be the 2023 result and the bottom one 2022 and what's really interesting here is that 29% of the units were actually shipped to China compared to 14% last year and for those who are following the news maybe a little bit confused here because the U.S. has been putting more and more sanctions on China and obviously this company is in the Netherlands but also the Dutch government has been putting some restrictions in place but what's happening here is they're shipping their less advanced machines to China so they were able and every time there is a new kind of regulation in place uh, from the U.S. You know, ASML tends to make sure that they follow it, but just, you know, just, just on the limits. So they, they're pretty good at that. I've noticed that they, they're doing that. So they're still shipping quite a bit of units to China. But again, the most advanced ones are not being shipped to China. And then in terms of guidance, they expect revenues to be flat in 2024 and gross margins to be slightly lower than the 51.3% that it was in 2023. So I, I think they're just just being a bit conservative here they're just trying because these are very expensive machines like i said they still have uh, loads of back orders and uh you know backlog i forgot to put the amount of backlogs but i think it's around the 20 billion mark something like that so but they they take time to build and ship so it's oftentimes these companies that are producing semiconductors like a taiwan semiconductor a samsung for example they buy these in advance with anticipation of future demand coming yeah, it's interesting to see China like double pretty much in shipping, but Taiwan went down 12%, which is kind of, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it, it's still the units, right? So it's not the most advanced one. So that's why it's like skews a little bit. Yeah. But the the most advanced ones are not uh, being shipped to China. Yeah. Yeah, because of regulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And probably just to finish on this, so the more advanced they are, the smaller they can essentially, the nanometer that they can do yeah. on these Wayfair, uh, the smaller it can be and the most powerful the chips can be. So the more transistors you can actually put on these Wafers. So that's the, the logic behind it. And they're usually also more power efficient. But again, it's not a perfect process. So when these machines are shipped out for the first time, oftentimes it does take some time for the companies to start producing the new smaller chips because early on in the process they have a a too high and i don't remember the exact term but basically a discard rate where you know that 70 percent of the chips produced are good and then 30 percent are not good so you want to get that in the the 90 percent if not more because it's never going to be exactly the same every single chip but you want to get it to a point where it's high enough where the chips are you know 95 percent or even higher in terms of i don't know the term but usability or the intent uh, that that they're used for yeah, it seems like a pretty interesting. I'll have to look into it. Like I said, I knew, I knew of them, but I didn't really, I didn't really know. I mean, semiconductor companies are just exploding over the last while. Like, even if you look back to oh, yeah. 2016, they had 7.6 billion in revenue, and now they got 30 billion as of the end of of 2023. They've just skyrocketed, especially 2022 to 2023. They they pretty much increased their revenue by 30 some percent, and now they're guiding to. Well, I mean, what were they guiding for? Uh, kind of flat. So for, for, yeah, so revenue for this year, and I forgot, but I, I'm going on memory here. So revenue for this year will be a literally flat. That's what they're guiding for. But again, I wouldn't be surprised if they have a bit higher revenue. I think they're yeah. just being conservative there. Yeah. Yeah. And these companies, like these companies aren't small either. This is what a $350 billion company. So they're growing yeah. at, <laughs> they're growing at a pretty, pretty crazy pace. Yeah. They're, I think it's one of the largest, uh, well, I know it's one of the largest companies in Europe. I mean, it's 314 yeah. billion euros in market cap. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, the growth of all these companies moving forward, but I'm going to have to dig into them a bit more. Yeah, good book for people wanting to learn about the semiconductor industry and the history behind it. Uh, Chip Wars is a really good one. So that's where I started learning a lot about it. So highly recommend it. Um, You'll understand a bit more about the whole process and probably want to dig even further. But again, it's... It's not easy to understand. I had to um, listen. I got the audiobook. I listened to it twice because there are certain parts. I was like, okay, I need to re-listen. Listen, like essentially like Google and look up certain terms and certain like concepts at the same time as I was listening to to try and get a, a decent understanding. And then I eventually started a position in, in ASML. Oh, so you own it. I didn't know that. Yeah. Didn't yeah, I do that. own it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's done pretty well. It's done pretty well. It's done all yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but no, I think this is uh, this is it for the episode today. Uh, I think it was a great one. Thanks for those who are tuning in. We've had some great numbers on these uh, earnings and news recently, so definitely appreciate that. If you can take the time, if you haven't done so, give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts with some nice comments. We always like it. Or Spotify. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at CDN underscore investing. Uh, I'm Fiat underscore Iceberg. And Dan, stock trades underscore CA.
Okay, perfect. I will one day, one of those <laughs> days, I'll know it by heart. But it is in the description. So uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next week. Yep, thanks for listening, everybody. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.